0: This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true, that if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change.
1: Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and salut babette. We report on climate action in the community. And today's show is very important. It requires community understanding of a very complicated issue that pulls at the heartstrings in one way and requires cool heads in the other way. It takes us to the Kosciuszko National Park, to fabled places like Jindabyne, Talbingo, Yukimbeen and Tumut Dam. I love that place. And when I was a child, my mother took me there to see the snowy mountain scheme and we marveled inside these huge turbine rooms it was like going inside one of the pyramids we stood in awe outside at the size of the dams as Siobhan McHugh said in her terrific book the snowy people behind the power the snowy mountain scheme is much more than a world-class engineering feat it marks a coming of age In this oddly un-Australian part of Australia with its alpine flowers and its snow, men and women from up to 70 countries literally moved mountains. When the snowy started, Australia was underpopulated, monolithic and burdened with a massive technical and cultural cringe. But when the snowy scheme finished... Australia was a much-expanded, multicultural entity whose magnificent achievement was acclaimed across the world. And I think that's what we're up against. We're up against the absolute knowledge that this was a nation-building project and we are desperately in need of a nation-building project right now. We want to be not the pariah of the world on climate action. We want to be the ones who are leading, who are showing our expertise, who are doing the right thing, transitioning to renewable energy and phasing out the exports of emissions that we're so infamous for now. So Malcolm Turnbull tapped into these emotions. He connected with the snowy 2.0 with the rich feelings that people had for the old snowy original program. I think many people want to feel proud again to know that we are getting on with the transition to renewable energy and in a way it's irresistible. We all know that the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow all the time and it needs firming and that can be in batteries like the big Tesla one in South Australia or it can be in pumped hydro and pumped hydro has become a very popular uh, notion that there's lots of places where you could uh, run water down a hill during the night and... um, You know, to keep the electricity going. But does this project, whose costs have already blown out from 2 billion when Malcolm Turnbull announced it in 2017 to 5 billion, really stack up? With the transmission lines, it could be up to 10 billion, and the taxpayer will be subsidising this. We've just been through a massive mistake in network investment over the last decade you know we heard of the poles and wires and according to the respected energy economist Bruce Mountain he said we are now falling into the same trap. Tony Wood from the Grattan Institute said the government had not adequately assessed alternative options before announcing Snowy 2.0 and apparently Malcolm Turnbull grasped at that project um, with very very little preparation or analysis. And what about the climate impact of all that tunnelling and land clearing and cement? I had thought maybe that was justified if the pumping was all done by hydro energy and the product was zero carbon. But I was so wrong. And you will learn what I did if you hang in with this broadcast, which is rather technical. But it it uh, it will debrief your mind from that idea. The massive pumping will actually be done by coal and then gas power and it will only be used around 80 hours per year because it's so expensive, according to the people we'll meet tonight. In fact, some people are saying Snowy 2.0 will provide a new market for coal-fired generation and gas and this will extend the life of old power stations and increase, rather than decrease, the greenhouse gas emissions of the whole it sort of does your head in, doesn't it? And this is in the park. We haven't even discussed the environmental impacts of a park that has been weakened by bushfires just so recently and needs protection. I went to a meeting at the invitation of the National Parks Association of New South Wales, and we'll hear from Ted Woodley, the treasurer and an energy expert also Associate Professor Bruce Mountain, who's Director of the Victorian Energy Policy Centre, and Gary Dunnett, the Executive Officer of National Parks Association. In summary, they are saying it's uneconomic, it's damaging. The alternative and environmental impacts haven't been really examined. The alternatives and the environmental impacts haven't really been examined and it will not reduce greenhouse emissions in the near future. Plus, we don't even need it yet. It's worth getting it right, I think. A nation-building, unifying program is very necessary, but not in this time and in this place. More dispersed energy, more responsive, modernised energy will be needed not this heavy white elephant the utopia team in 2014 sounded the warning stop we are going the wrong way
0: jim i was just coming to see you i was just coming to see you right can we talk i know you're really keen But I just don't think we can make a very fast train work. Really? The numbers just don't stack up. You've got to look beyond the numbers at vision, Tony. Jim. If we'd listened to the bean counters, we never would have built the Snowy. The Snowy was a white elephant. Are you kidding me? The Snowy forged this nation. I don't think it's ever turned a profit. Oh, stop it. I'm not even going to listen to that. Environmentally, it was a disaster. Hydroelectricity? I did a project on that at school. It supplies like less than 1% of the grid. And what about everything else the Snowy's given us? What else? That mini-series? Jim, they're white elephants, just like the Very Fast Train. The numbers don't stack up. So you've looked into it? Everyone's looked into it. There's been like ten feasibility studies in the last few decades. Oh, well, what does that tell you? Stop doing feasibility studies. Exactly. Huh? And what happens next? Nothing. If, if the study says it stinks, we stop. You can't stop now. You wouldn't believe the reaction this is getting. You have made an announcement. Of course not. But an announcement hasn't been written. Drafted? The PM's very keen. You've told the Prime Minister. The backbenchers are restless. Seriously, he's got to come up with some sort of 30-year vision in the next three weeks. Or it's
1: gone. (laughs) Ted Woodley is one of the authors of Snowy 2.0 Doesn't Stack Up. Um, I have Ted Woodley here, he's the former senior energy executive, but he's now the honorary treasurer of the National Parks Association. As he reminded me, it's all volunteers here and we're talking about the Kosciuszko National Park today and the snowy 2.0 project that's rearing its head right in the centre of it. Ted says that 100 square kilometres of the park will be permanently damaged. But the Snowy Hydro Company, it's a federal government-owned company, they say only one square kilometre will be um, permanently damaged. Now, I think there's a huge discrepancy there, and I just can't believe that uh, there's only one square kilometre that will be damaged. But, Ted, can you explain from the bushwalkers' point of view, what would you see when you go and see this finished project if they ever did finish it?
2: Okay. well, the one square kilometre that Snowy claim is really the area that they've fenced off to their um, power station or the surge tank or the items of equipment. So that's the area that the public will no longer be able to um, access. The 100 square kilometres that we're referring to is the area of the park that will be permanently impacted by the actual construction of the project. So you're talking about a a massive project. There's a 27-kilometre pipeline between uh, Tantangara and Talbingo Reservoir, an underground power station. You've got additional access roads. Uh, You've got impacts on the reservoirs through the dumping of spoil. You've got transfer of uh, pest species. Um, A whole raft of um, actions as a result of the construction that will permanently affect... Uh, that area of the park
1: and this thing about uh, getting all this rock and debris and then putting it into the Talbingo and uh or the other one the Tantangara um reservoir that, surely that's very disturbing i mean they, they plan to just put more um soil back above there and and some grass and just pretend it's rehabilitated
2: well the The tunnel is 10 metres diameter for 27 kilometres and then you've got a massive cavern for the uh, underground power station and then other connecting tunnels and vent shafts and what have you. So the total volume of material that will be extracted is around 15 million cubic metres. Our 15 million cubic metres would cover a football field to a height of 3 kilometres. It's an absolutely massive amount of excavated spoil and unfortunately... At least half of it is not benign. Uh, A fair proportion of it has naturally occurring asbestos and also there's potentially acid-forming rock. So it's not benign rock in the first place. Snowy um, are proposing to dump over two-thirds of that in the two reservoirs, Tantangara and Talbingo, and the rest is going to be used for land-forming or road-base or whatever. Uh, but effectively, it's 15 million cubic metres of contaminated rock being dumped in the park. The, as far as the reservoirs go that you referred to, um, it's effectively just bulldozing off, in, in both cases, about 4 million cubic metres into um, into those reservoirs. Um, that will reduce the capacity of those reservoirs, not by a lot, but they will still um, reduce it. Um, so you'll just have this rock dump on the edge of both of those reservoirs. Um, obviously, it'll be covered with some soil and maybe grass or whatever, but um, that'll be there forever.
1: Yeah. And nothing like what was there before. That's right. OK, look, I'd like to take you on another level, more like an emotional level, as a bushwalker, as someone who presumably loves nature, seeing as you're out there with the um, National Park Association... A lot of people are grieving terribly now. I meet a lot of people who are very touched by the animal deaths and the um, people in my own family are affected by the bushfires down south. It just seemed to be like out of everyone's experience. And I've been with this program for 10 years and predicting climate change and interviewing scientists who have been predicting exactly this. You're making predictions in your report which are very measured and very reasonable. There's nothing emotional in there at all. It's very sensible. Um, If readers would like to look it up, it's called Snowy 2.0
2: doesn't stack up.
1: Doesn't stack up. You it's a very sensible piece of writing, but from the other point of view, from the emotional point of view, can you understand how people are thinking, god grief, this is happening, this catastrophe, we've got to do something. Best do something big. Let's do a big, you know, hydro-powered thing thinking it's hydro-powered it's all water it's all natural it's all sustainable it's all renewable why not and i've learned a lot today in this conference but can you just put it simply to to listeners why that isn't the solution to this grief they're feeling and wanting something big to happen uh
2: well i don't think anybody's grieving more than i am and it's just just unbelievable what's happened the last uh, few months and uh, the the future is looking pretty dire to all of us. Um, I think a a major issue for pumped hydro is that whilst it is using water to store energy, that water needs to be pumped and it's not renewable energy that's being used to pump that water. That... uh, that pumping will be done effectively by coal-fired generators. And the reason is that the uh, pumping is uh, a marginal uh, load and the marginal generator on the system is normally coal-fired plant. And that will apply for the next 10 or so plus years. So snowy... Um, 2.0 will actually increase greenhouse gas emissions through its pumping activity. It will also require an enormous amount of um, greenhouse gas emissions in terms of the um, materials, the uh, equipment, um, the boring of these uh, uh, tunnels, all of that equipment. So it is actually going to result in additional greenhouse gas emissions beyond what would have been the case without Snowy 2. As a contrast, uh, storages associated with um, solar or wind farms or storages um, associated with households where you are clearly storing renewable energy has no greenhouse gas emissions. So we need to somehow or other make it clear to people that pumped hydro, whilst it's using water as the medium for pumping and uh, generation, it's actually coal-fired, it's, it's a coal-fired storage because it's using coal-fired electricity to put that water uh, up the hill for later um, use to generate power. I'm
1: sure this will be news to a lot of people, but thank you for working on it. It's a big shift, I think. Do you think for people to understand that? Have you found people kind of just don't get it when you talk?
2: Yeah, I think everybody thinks, well, it it makes sense. Uh, uh, um, What's being touted is that uh, solar and wind um, generators are being used to pump the water up the hill and then snowy's going to operate when the sun's not shining or the wind's not blowing. Now, snowy too operates on the basis of buying power when it's cheap, selling power when it's dear. And it may well um, generate at times when uh, the sun's not shining or the wind's not blowing. But the point is that the power used to pump that water in the first place is not solar and not wind.
1: someone here called Bruce Mountain. He's the director of Victoria's Energy Policy Centre and he thinks there are cheaper alternatives to the snowy 2.0, um, pumped hydro, big, big green battery in the snowy mountains. What, what are the alternatives, Bruce?
3: Well, the alternatives are not to use electricity, to find ways to to, to use less Uh, If you still want to use it, see if you can shift its use. So take it out of the times when uh, electricity is plentiful and shift it in the times when it's scarce. Um, That load response is, I think, the first step. Um, Then there are a list as long as my arm of other competing technologies. Obviously, batteries we all know. Uh, Batteries can be small distributed on the customer's premises or in the grid of various different sizes. Um, we can heat and store water. Uh, there are flywheels. You can actually compress gas. Uh, there's hydro as opposed to pumped hydro. Um, there's a whole vast plethora of different pumped hydro technologies. Um, and then there will be many that I haven't mentioned that are nascent ways of storing electricity, not yet sort of widely known in the market.
1: I'm a bit surprised by this meeting today. I've learned a lot. And I wonder what – I was going to, dying to ask you, what do you favour? What strategy for the future do you favour? Maybe what is being pioneered in other countries where they've got bigger populations and perhaps bigger demand for electricity?
3: Yeah. I think policy to make load follow supply rather than getting our energy supply to follow the load – is is first best policy, and that's now a preference everywhere. So, finding ways for customers to enjoy the benefits they get from electricity, but in a way that encourages them to use it at a time when it's most suitable for the supply, when it's plentiful, sun is shining, the wind is blowing. That's my sort of fundamental preference. Otherwise, I am uh, I don't have a preference on the technology per se. I don't have a I don't select between the technologies because I like pumped hydro or I like batteries but I think batteries are likely to be winning by far because they can be bought on a credit card installed very quickly much like a fridge um, put at the point of use which allows people to use their own electricity rather than to buy from the grid um, and so for all those reasons I think uh, in terms of the economics and also the greenhouse gas impact uh, of a battery which is actually behind the meter using rooftop solar is zero, whereas any other storage technology, if it's drawing electricity from the grid uh, to to store power, has a greenhouse gas impact.
1: And also it's decentralised, which I've gathered from the talk today, that the uh, the losses of energy in pumping out that um, uh, electricity from the middle of the Snowy Mountains right up to Sydney or down to Melbourne is really not going to make the whole thing not really worthwhile
3: yes uh, losses are are very sizable you're losing about 10 percent of your electricity to to pump to snowy because you'll be getting it from uh one of the two coal valleys in uh vic or up in sydney um and you're losing 10 percent to get it back down to the customer who's using it most likely in melbourne and sydney Um, so those losses become a big part of the equation. Mm -hmm.
1: My last question, and I hope it's not difficult because you're obviously very factual and very objective and you're trying to be really reasonable and measured. We've had this very interesting conference here, but my feeling is that people are suffering climate grief right now, especially with the bushfires. It's woken up a lot of people. And um, we've seen decades of. decades delay and denial at the political level and behind that the sort of shadowy figures of business who have somehow created an atmosphere in Australia that's absolutely toxic for, you know, progress on climate action. And I wonder how can your opposition to the Snowy 2.0, which I can see is very reasonable, but the listeners will not have seen all the, you know, the details, how can that not feed into more conflict? I'd like to know how a way round how could it help us get on with the emergency and the scale of transition we need? And I'd like to know how can, say, governments even, if you were talking to the state government in New South Wales who was going to Im- imminently um, approve this project or not, how would you get through to them that they get more bang for their billions of bucks as well as more appreciation from the public with these alternatives which sound very diverse and very worthy but not as sexy as a great big battery up there in the mountains?
3: Yeah, I think um, I too am feeling the bushfire grief and I think others are too. And in this environment I understand entirely um, that people are looking for unity. They're looking for nation-building unity um, and they associate Snowy Hydro 2.0 with a positive um, uh, nation-building change I hate to be the bringer of bad news, but it's not. It's misconstrued to see it that way. Um, I don't intend to cause conflict in that. Um, unfortunately, that's, that's the situation. Um, I think the time has come to put the ball back in the other court to the environmental movements and say, what is it about pumped hydro that you think is necessary or superior to the alternatives? Why is it that this is now a preoccupation? Um, it has all of these detriments that we've spoken of that are minimised for um, depleted mine sites, different category, or one or two relatively small sites. All of them have great disadvantages which is why internationally when you look at uh, storage devices being considered just about everywhere, pumped hydro is just nowhere on the scene. It is just of no consequence at all. The vast bulk of electricity, uh, of energy storage, is solar thermal in our hot water tanks and converting that into electricity of various devices, batteries are by far and away the biggest growing storage um, technology. So um, we, we need to bring far more critical perspectives on, uh, on the storage of, of, um, of power. And this knee-jerk reaction, the first best response is pumped hydro. I think Ted summarized it very accurately by saying, oh, it's hydro, hydro is renewable. No, it's not. It's pumping and storing electricity from a grid, which as long as we've got coal is, you're storing coal-fired electricity. It's the marginal intensity, not the average, that matters for trying to figure out what is the intensity of that. Um Perhaps if we if we direct our energies not just in ensuring that that bad decisions are not made, but also ensuring that good ones are made, and those good ones are expanding... Uh, solar production, most particularly at the point of use, as quickly as we can, and I think the main point I'd make is we can do that. It's in everyone's benefit, not just those that install it. It brings prices down for for all customers, and seek unity on those, mm-hmm. and at the same time deal with some of the the undoing of of what are bad bad choices. Um, unfortunately, that's that is where I am. I do understand. It is to take away from a feeling of nation building um, that many people have and, unfortunately, that's just where it is.
1: Thank you very much. As they say, the truth is contagious. The truth is contagious. How bad is this project?
3: I've picked up on Snowy, not out of any research interest, but saw it coming along and intuitively said, "Mm, this is completely contrary to everything we know about how we ought to be developing a power system to transition to low emissions, and dug into it from there. And as we've dug in, we just find um, an absolute train smash. Will it be cheap? snowbee S 2 S2 loses 40% of the energy stored. Batteries lose roughly 10%. Now, this matters a very great deal, because once you've built the plant, your costs are sunk. And all you're then doing, from an operational point of view, is looking for the least possible losses to operate storage on themselves have operational costs, but the biggest thing in their operational cost is the energy that they consume in order to store. And so what this says is, once Snowy's built, it'll be the most expensive storage device in the market, and there'll be competing storage devices, a whole range of ways of storing electricity and moving load. It's the last one that you will want to dispatch because it's the most expensive. So So, so Snowy 2, nonetheless say it's viable and we've met with a federal minister and he insists that it's perfectly viable and they say the basis of that is, oh, don't worry about the wholesale market price forecast we use. We assume Snowy Hydro is going to be selling contracts. Contracts are in the market. They are swaps. You are swapping a fixed price for a variable price, much less, you know, in the same form as a mortgage or, or you know, or a loan. There's a short-term cost of money and then your mortgage fixes it for a certain period of time. Um... To be viable, even on their 5.1 billion estimate of their own private costs, they need to somehow conjure out of the market contract income, which is four times more than the spot market. That's not the way it works. And there's heaps of data on this, and we analyse it all the time, looking at the difference between spot market prices and contract market prices. They level. They're much the same. One year, contract's a bit higher than spot. Other times, spot's a bit higher than contract. Um, all you're doing is you're swapping. There's two people on either side of the transaction and they're taking a bet, and sometimes one wins and the other wins. So you can expect what they get from contracts to be roughly comparable to what they get from spot. Snowy so conveniently assume, oh, actually, we get four times as much. So there can be no doubt Snowy 2 is not commercially viable and it will be an enormous um, burden on the public purse. When I speak to this, uh, speak... Of this to other people, in, um, I can't talk about their names, but people who, who whose views I, I have a lot of time for, the only response they have to this is yes, but we waste a lot of money elsewhere in the economy in the military. Um no, no, this is worth standing up for on all the grounds. But on economics and the crisis we see with the fire, the great need for these resources, this is the last thing we should be throwing public money at.
1: Have environmental groups misunderstood the climate impact of this expensive project?
3: The greenhouse gas impacts, this is particularly important, and I think the environmental movement have... Um, fail to properly understand the greenhouse gas impacts of Snowy 2. And I think as a consequence, greenhouse gas concerns which I share have allowed Snowy Hydro to have an easy ride. Uh, when you look into it, Snowy Hydro will increase greenhouse gas emissions, not just in construction, but in operation. OK, so the question is, when Snowy 2 pumps, it draws electricity from the grid, thousands of generators will be producing at any one time that Snowy Hydro is drawing, which generators will Snowy Hydro to draw on, to pump? And the story, and the stories are so valuable in this, is, oh, we Snowy Hydro is a big generator, that, a big pump that takes electricity, stores it, and when the sun's not shining, wind's not blowing in winter, it can push it back into the grid. And it will be pumping when sun is plentiful in the middle of the day. Well, it may well be pumping when the sun is plentiful in the middle of the day, also possibly at night when the sun isn't. Those are the times where electricity will be cheapest. But just because the sun is plentiful means nothing about the generation which is used to pump water, which is their stored. So in answer to the question, which one will it be? And the answer in economics is perfectly clear, and the engineering answer follows from that. It will almost always be the marginal, most expensive generator. This is the generator that it would not be operating unless Snowy 2 asks for the electricity to pump. So the question is, when Snowy 2 is pumping, the, the question you have to ask yourself, which generator do I turn down if I, w- if I wasn't pumping? And you'd ask that same question for you when you turn on your lights, which generator do I turn up? It's always the marginal generator. And the marginal generator on our electrical system for the foreseeable future will be coal, at the times that it's pumping. Right now it's gas in the afternoon, in most markets. It's gas in South Australia, because they don't have coal, and, and TAS, it's a combination of gas and hydro. When snow is pumping, the power it's storing will be coal. That will be the generator you turn down. As coal leaves the power system, it'll increasingly be gas. But that will be decades away. Gas is a lower um, greenhouse gas intensity than coal, of course. Um, half, roughly, for a base load gas but it will still be fossil-fired generated. That's the electricity that's going into Snowy. So when Snowy reproduces and you claim you're using green electricity because it's coming through a hydro turbine, no. It is converted coal generation.
1: Is this energy green?
3: Um, It's not true for directly connected storage. So if you collect solar or wind, um, either a household or a um, dedicated power company with a dedicated asset, if they directly divert that electricity into their battery, to their storage device, or solar thermal, or heat thermal, or some, some other storage device, you can absolutely be sure that that is renewable electricity that's being stored. And when it's reproduced and used, either at the point of use or exported to the grid, you can be sure that that is zero greenhouse gas electricity that's stored. And this makes a very big difference for the greenhouse gas intensity of, of storage and how we should think about storage in the transitioning power system. Um, it is true, this is the point of our snowy story coal. it is true of other grid connected storage that does not have access to behind the meter generation. So you put a battery, it doesn't matter that it's hydro versus battery, you put a battery in the grid um, on the other side of customers' beta and it's drawing from the grid to to charge itself, to store the electricity, it too will be storing fossil fuel electricity. Nonetheless, Snowy will be worse, considerably worse than the alternatives because of the efficiency losses. It requires so much more electricity to, to be uh, used in the process of pumping and the friction and other losses from Snowy um, that it's it's storing x amount, but it's wasting a whole lot of coal generation in the process of storing. So, on a greenhouse gas measure, much as you'd expect, driven by the efficiency of the plant, snowy really hydro.
1: Gary Dunnett is the executive officer for uh, National Parks Association of New South Wales. His talk was filled with pictures of wildlife that he's trying to protect in the Kosciuszko National Park. As climate change forces all sorts of species to higher ground, Gary is at the peak spot in Australia. There are no higher altitudes for animals and plants to seek refuge you can't find an offset place for species that are adapted to the conditions of the Snowy Mountains. He made us see how the park is a national treasure with Aboriginal heritage showing human civilization back thousands of years. And he was dismayed at the hasty and even careless approach and lack of public scrutiny that he'd come up against. Gary Dunnett.
2: All right, I'm going to start at the
4: very gross level. So... Snowy Hydro acknowledges that their primary development footprint is around 1,700 hectares. So in other words, about 17 square kilometres. The primary development footprint includes about 10 square kilometres of native vegetation, which would not just be cleared, but in fact the soil layer would be removed, in a lot of cases it's excavated down into the bedrock. So it's absolute fundamental transformation of the nature of landscape. Most of that 10 square kilometres of vegetated land is also habitat for a whole range of threatened species or threatened ecological communities. Um, That's, if you like, the essential direct development imprint. A much larger area is actually impacted by all of the roadworks, by the changes to hydrology through the drawdown of groundwater systems, And our estimate is that that's something in the order of 10,000 hectares, so in other words, around 100 square kilometres. You wrap those up and we have far and away the largest infrastructure development ever proposed for a national park in New South Wales. And we can't find anything that's comparable at the national scale. There's certainly other examples in the Southern Hemisphere if we want to move into third world context, but we can't find anything else in Australia which is in the order of, you know, 100 square kilometres of National Park being proposed. I must say, and I know this is sort of responding on a very emotional level, but the thing which has annoyed me more than anything else has been the public assurance by Snowy Hydro that in fact the impact, the permanent impact of this proposal is a mere 99 hectares. And what they say when they um, assert that 99 hectares is essentially that that's the bit that'll be concrete, bitumen and steel at the end of their development. Everything else will be rehabilitated. So what they're asking us to accept is that when you take native vegetation, you dig it up, you change the nature of the landform, you destroy the hydrology, if you plant something in the whatever vestigial soils you put back onto that landscape, you have recreated the essence of a national park. Um, and I know I'm reacting in a way that's, um, you know, I can't believe the petulance of that statement on their part, but what it absolutely concerns me is the way that it signals a fundamental lack of understanding of what constitutes a natural landscape. That does not give a good sign for what sort of environmental custodians the people who would be looking to expand their infrastructure over, you know, 100 square kilometres of national park would make. Uh, I think it's a really concerning sign that they are playing such silly buggers' games... offsets. Threatened species habitat. Most importantly there is no potential for the basic tool of offsetting which is to use the funds that are generated by a development to go and secure the long-term status of comparable lands. And the reason for that's pretty obvious. There is no replaceability about the habitats that are lost in the Alpine Reserves. There is no one else who actually has something that's comparable to Kosciuszko National Park out there on the market. And so what we are seeing is a proposal that there will be some general environmental works across the park. Um, The problem is that we won't see those until an approval's issued and you've actually got conditions of approval which will embed those requirements. And so there's zero public transparency around that. Um, Just running through to the the end of those uh, emissions issues, The really telling one is that we don't actually have a life cycle carbon emissions analysis as part of the EIS. Um, What you've got is an analysis that tells you how much diesel they'll burn um, to run a couple of generators. What you don't have is what's actually involved in the construction of all the concrete tunnels, in the production of all the steel that goes into the infrastructure. Um, (coughs) And in the absence of that, There's a very high prospect that what you've got is the perverse outcome that we're going to actually generate more carbon out of the production of those basic materials for the proposal than we'll ever save through the negative impact on carbon emissions. It's a Latham snipe, one of the sort of migratory birds that sort of runs from Siberia, or flies from Siberia up into the high country each year. Um, So I'm just going to to finish on. There's a long, long list of environmental impacts that go beyond these sort of vegetation threatened species and core park things. But it, they're really a function of just the sheer scale of this proposal. So we know that an absolute minimum of 335 Aboriginal cultural heritage sites uh, have been identified in the disturbance footprint. As most people who know, you only find sites where you've got some level of disturbance already. So you. Almost certainly talking about an order of magnitude greater than that. Every one of those sites will be destroyed by this proposal, Um, and we've got to remember that we're we're only twenty to twenty-five years into understanding that the alpine areas weren't an occasional place that people have gone to over millennia and through the Holocene and early uh, Quaternary. But in fact, these are areas that have been intensively used. So in fact, uh, the EIS really does dismiss the significance of those sites on the basis that there's billions of stone artefacts across the Australian continent. But what you actually have is really substantial evidence that there simply won't be the opportunity to investigate and make credible decisions about which parts of it are absolutely part of our natural heri- our national heritage, which must be preserved, the whole lot's going to go in one fell swoop. Um, there's been no assessment of the cumulative impacts of that heritage, on that heritage of the previous developments across Kosciuszko. Um, and the thing that I find really galling is that again and again, we're assured that we don't need to worry about issues like the impacts on the visual character of Kosciuszko, which is one of our, if you like, pieces of shared heritage, because they've already mucked it up through the previous hydro schemes. We've already got transmission lines across the... all over the park, so why would we be worried that there's a few more that sort of take out the last few unblighted landscapes? At its heart, we've got an unprecedented proposal of massive scale in a national park and no grappling by the proponent with the fact that they're in one of the most precious parts of our nation, but instead we're dealing with this as though it's yet another greenfield site. And so the only real issue is how many threatened species credits they're going to have to fork up for. Thank you.
1: In the Q and A, people asked whether their message to stop, slow down, and consider the alternatives was cutting through with politicians.
4: We've spoken extensively to key politicians, or for the most part, in fact, we've been sort of bobbed off to their political advisers at the state and Commonwealth level. I'm not sure what the other people on the panel think, but my take from our discussions with the Commonwealth Minister for Energy and Emissions was we're not going to get anywhere with him. Um, Angus Taylor made it very clear that his view was that this project stacked up. And just going back to George's comments, um, my personal view is that the weakness, if you like, that still sits there would be for the business case to actually be disclosed. And personally, I don't think there's any chance that we'll ever see that disclosed Um, for the simple reason that at the moment, the rhetoric that really suits is that Snowy 2.0 does a fantastic job in firming the introduction of renewables. What they don't want to put into the public arena is the fact that you've got a government-owned corporation which, if it does make a profit, will make a profit out of selling... Very, very expensive power to consumers at the time when we're all at desperate need. In terms of the Commonwealth arena, we see very little movement. In the case of the state arena, um, you know, Bruce has made the comments about them having a vested interest in the transmission augmentation quite separate to Snowy 2.0, but our strong view is that. The one pivotal decision that still sits there is by Rob Stokes as Minister for the Environment around um, the environmental impact statement for the main works. And we've been working really strongly with his department in trying to get them over the line, not to be blunt, not so much about the scale of impacts because they frankly seem quite blasé about that and that does come down to that issue that I've talked about about there's really very little credit for the fact that this is actually happening in a national parks context. It's just another development. But the area we're trying to work on them is in that the dual ones of um, the lack of consideration of alternatives, which is a real flaw when you think about this thing in um, environmentally sustainable development terms. Um, So that's absolutely critical. And the other side of it is... Um, the magnitude of the offsets arrangements that are going to flow out of this. And we, between this project and Warragamba, we could very easily get to the point where the state planning and environment ministers end up breaking the whole offset scheme, you know, because the magnitude of the costs associated with it are just spiralling to such an extent. So we're making that investment around trying to convince the, um, the state minister um, He's certainly sensitised towards it um, and his department, we've noticed some shift in their attitude around this question about whether there is any real reason to consider um, the alternatives question, so we stay a little hopeful on that front.
1: Do we actually need this amount of storage now?
3: To my point about stories carrying the day, there's a lovely narrative, when it doesn't blow, the sun doesn't shine, we need to smooth it out. Um, studies we've done, the energy market operators done, uh, 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 and also a whole range of groups have done, all show that storage becomes important once the renewable penetration gets to a particular level. We're nowhere near that level now. Typically it's about 50% or more of your total electricity production comes from wind or solar or some other variable uh, um, source, Um, So, we aren't anywhere near there now and we are moving in a world with incredibly rapid technology change and unforeseen technology change. Um, I don't know anyone who forecasts solar would do what it's done over the last 10 years or wind would do what it's done over the last 10 years. And so, there's a rapid expansion of these things, but there's a change in in the nature of solar and wind panels, orientation, dual-axis tracking. Plant efficiency, panel efficiency, and so on, so, and load responsiveness by customers. This linking together the operation of their own domestic consumption devices with other sources. So there's a whole range of alternatives to this storage need, which in a renewable world from variable resources matters. Yes, but we've got a long way to go before we need to do this. The energy market, rate, the, the 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 body that that actually operates our market, which which actually produces an annual um, statement of what it expects demand and supply will be. Its most recent statement said there'd be no impact to the power system if this plant was actually delayed to 2030. Um, and that was the end of their planning horizon. It's not that they didn't say, they didn't say there wouldn't be an impact if it was actually deferred further. So there's this lovely narrative, and it's one that kind of unified and is the source of the bipartisan and there's a reason why this issue doesn't have a huge cut-through, at least nationally yet, and in the States yet, is, is obviously part of the reason, is because there is this narrative. But it's not needed now, and there are much better ways to do it when you do
2: need to do it. Um, if I can just add, I mean, we're fully aware of the support for Snowy 2 in the Snowy region. Uh, I know the region very well. I visit, and everybody sees that this is the opportunity for lots of jobs, lots of uh, generation of uh, um, uh, uh, money and uh, activity within, within the region and inherently it sounds like a good thing because everybody down there like everybody here loves the snowy and sees that it's a potential additional use for the snowy scheme. So and, and so that sentiment is, is understood and of course the local member is uh, very supportive of, uh, of uh, Snowy too um, but the reality is uh, this is a project that if it is built will effectively be a white elephant I mean so whilst it might create some short term economic activity uh, there's at least 2,000 on, on the ground jobs involved um, with enormous activity for local businesses, whilst that would be the case for the next uh, five or six years, um, from what we're saying and what we're seeing, it will be built um, but then it will be not used or not used very much for all the reasons that we've just said. I, I
1: was interested in the alternatives. And uh, I think we've gone through them rather quickly compared to the problems with Snowy 2.0. And I was interested in the one about Tumut Three being more used, but it's virtually not producing a lot of the time. Um, you know, this is for radio, so could you put it simply for the radio audience who haven't seen all your graphs and everything, like, what are the really attractive alternatives? I went to a talk in um, Tathra after the bushfires, and Professor... Lakers came down there and he just pointed to this map of all the hills and said we could have pumped hydro in all these thousands of places and in the recent bushfires I thought wouldn't that be good to have these dams all around for them to scoop up the water and put out the bushfires but that's my simple minded way of doing it but can you tell me what are the best alternatives staying just within pumped hydro not all those other things?
3: So the best, the best alternatives if you said you liked pumped hydro would be the used mines. Um, The the used mines have a height difference because they've dug a hole in the ground and you don't need to burrow through the rock to put your pipes. You can, like Tumut 3, put pipes over the ground. They can be installed quickly. Um, There's two proposals being looked at by private utilities who invest in shareholders money and they can't get the economics to stack up and these would be plants with None, a fraction of the technical complexity of Snowy Hydro, too and economic viability just heaps better and close to load, and fraction of the capital outlay, and so on and so forth. So, if that's what you were looking for, then those would be the places to start. Um, w- w- you know, once you've done that, then look for um, incremental adjustments, perhaps where a dam exists right now. And you can use a pipe and the dam's at a higher altitude. You can, you can use a pipe, create a turkey's nest or a smaller dam downstream and pump, you know, pump. Uh, but, but I don't know quite why pumped hydro is seen by large parts of the community as something that's good, as, as a good thing. It's, um, it has environmental effects, even in, in you know, the, the, the best cases, other than perhaps mines. Maybe there'll be some localised uh, impacts, but they'll be small. But but bar that, it generally has these impacts. And it it invariably needs quite a lot of transmission capacity, if it's a decent-sized one, to, to get it out. And that has another whole series of impacts on the environment. So if you are going to restrict yourself to pump hydro, then I think exploit as best you can these mines. There is the Turkey's Nest technology, which is spoken of frequently but has really got nowhere, which is to locate pumped hydro close to the coast to use um, seawater. Uh, and we do have lots of coast in Australia, the South Australia, where we've got close proximity between the sea and high altitude land, a couple of hundred meters, which is plenty of head. Uh, so these opportunities ostensibly exist, they're complex. Uh, salt water brings a whole lot of additional problems, the friction, the salt in the water, you need stainless steel uh, turbines and so on. So it hasn't been exploited greatly. But the things to do would be those low capital, small ones, do several of them, mm. rather than one, one uh, huge one.
2: Um, if I can just add, I think the attraction of pumped hydro is people think it's water, mm. and water's renewable. And that's the case with run-of-the-river schemes. You have water that falls as rainfall at the top of the mountain, and you run the water down through the... the um, Power station rather than letting it go down through the river system. But whilst water is still the mechanism for storage, in pumped hydro's case, to get the water up to the top reservoir requires coal fired power. So it's effectively a coal fired storage. The other area that we think is most prospective is using the existing system within Tumut 3 pumped hydro. At present, there's a very small reservoir which is the lower reservoir, Junima, that's only 30 gigalitres whereas the upper reservoir is 160 gigalitres and below Junima you've got massive blowering reservoir. You could conceivably just put a pump in blowering, pump the water back up to Talbingo and get far greater use of the existing Tumut 3 power station. All you need is a tunnel or a pipe and a pumping station. You could conceive of doubling the size of Tumut 3 um, or putting more pumps there. So there are far simpler, cheaper, quicker alternatives. They're not as big as Snowy Two, but there are alternatives within the existing scheme, Snowy scheme, that are far better than what's been proposed.
1: So the best outcome would be to have a moratorium on this one for the moment and explore those alternatives? Well, that's that's the main issue that
2: we're trying to say to the politicians and others, look we've raised all these issues, you don't need to believe us, but there's us and there are a whole raft of other experts out there that are saying similar things to us, that this project doesn't stack up. At the very least, to have an independent review. In the three years since the project was announced by Malcolm Turnbull, there's been no independent expert review of this project. As a... Um, example, the Battery of the Nation project which is being uh, discussed for Tasmania which is putting in more pumped hydro there and a link across the Bass Strait they're going through this sort of feasibility process it's a transparent process, they're looking at all the alternatives, they're ranking them with respect to the economics, the engineering, the environmental side they've picked the three apparent best alternatives, they're going to do more analysis on those and they'll come out with a report in another 6 months or 12 months time as to whether or not any of these are economic and what is the best with the full analysis of why that's the best. In Snowy 2's case, we just were presented with this massive scheme and no alternative, no sort of uh, basis for determining that is the best scheme and that's the one that's been run. In our view, if there were an independent review, it doesn't Mm -hmm. need to take very much time, We've got plenty of time, we don't need Snowy 2 today, we (coughs) don't need it in 2025, at the earliest it or an equivalent is needed in 10 years time. Let's review it, look at it against uh, all other alternatives, pumped hydro and other storage, look at what the trends are within the electricity market and determine whether it is the appropriate best way of spending $10 billion dollars.
1: You've been listening to Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Radio Skid Row in Sydney. The Beyond Zero Missions Community Show is on 5pm in Melbourne every Monday and 10am at uh, uh, Radio Skid Row every Monday in Sydney. Thanks tonight to Andy on panel. Our guests were Ted Woodley, Gary Dennett and Bruce Mountain and thanks also to Shani. Connell, who was so keen about getting the, the uh, message of National Parks Association out. She's very keen that more people know about the Snowy 2.0 and why we need to reconsider. Their report is called Snowy 2.0 Doesn't Stack Up. I'd like to now make an appeal for people to subscribe to 3CR. Take this opportunity tonight to invest in independent community media. It's $35 for unwaged or concession holders, $75 for people with a wage and $150 for solidarity, um, people who just want to show solidarity or people who are in groups. You might like to ask your company where you work or um, a group that you know of that might like to just subscribe $150 for a year's independent radio isn't a lot of money for a group of people. Just call Melbourne 03 9419 8377 or go to the 3CR online subscriptions web page. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck.